The following is produced by Artisan Church. Welcome to the Artisan Church Podcast, a weekly broadcast of Artisan Church in Rochester, New York. To learn more about Artisan Church or to support the ministry, visit www.artisanchurch.com. This is week four, our final week of flannel fun. And my name is Scott. I'm another of the pastors here at Artisan. And uh, I don't know about you, but this has been so cool for me to do this. Um, Lest you think I just and Jason just had all this information stored in our heads in perfect order prior to this series, uh, let me tell you that that's not actually true. So this has been really a learning experience for us uh, and kind of good reminders of the things that we you know, that are in our history. And, you know, I don't, I don't really think it's okay for the people of faith to be ignorant of their history. And so hopefully this series has made you a little bit less ignorant of salvation history. It certainly has made me less ignorant. Um, and I don't know if, if, is Kathy here tonight? She is. Kathy, can everybody give Kathy a big round of applause? <laughs> Kathy made all these flannel graph boards. Yeah, and she hasn't yet told me to stop embarrassing her, uh, so I figured I'd get one more shot in. But thank you so much, Kathy. Uh, I speak for all of us when I say you did an awesome job with this. So uh, let's, let's dive into week four, which is Prophets and Promises. You may remember that last week, uh, Jason ended up with the, the beginnings of the monarchy for the Jewish people, and that Saul was the first king, and then David... And Solomon followed him. Now, uh, I'm going to start actually with a little bit of a geography lesson. I realize this map is kind of small, but this is the promised land, okay? And uh, this yellowish here is, is, the, is water, and that's actually the Mediterranean Sea. So I don't know how, how good your geography is, but um, the Dead Sea is here, and you may remember Jesus calming the storm on the Sea of Galilee that's up here, and the, the Jordan River where he was baptized is in between those two bodies of water. And the city of Jerusalem where the temple is, or was, uh, is, is right about here. And then this is the Mediterranean Sea, so that would go off to the west and you'd have the north coast of Africa. Are you with me here, geographically speaking? Uh, and so this is the promised land where God's people uh, lived in sort of kind of happiness uh, for three reigns of three kings, uh, King Saul, King David, and King Solomon. And they each had their own foibles, but things started to go um, south a little bit more so with Solomon, who um, either for diplomatic reasons or for, say, personal reasons, married lots and lots of different women, uh, including some pagan women. And so, ostensibly, that was to, to protect his borders. So, in, in one way, he's sort of not relying on God to, to providentially take care of the promised land and the, and the people there. And he's sort of making these diplomatic um, marriages, arranged marriages with, with, you know, other women. And so, as that process uh, unfolds, you see kind of a commingling of re- religious belief and tradition and practice in the promised land. So, the, so God's people begin to turn to other gods, 
all right, other, than, other than him, Yahweh. So it started to come apart a little bit under Solomon's rule, uh, but the problem became more pronounced uh, after Solomon died and his son Rehoboam took the throne. Now, Rehoboam had a, a disagreement with Jeroboam. You can see they're very angry with each other here. Jeroboam was uh, appointed by Solomon the, uh, the head of the laborers in the, in the nation of Israel. And so, uh, unfortunately, Solomon did not treat the laborers very nicely. And so, when Solomon died and Rehoboam took the throne, Jeroboam saw this as an opportunity and said to Rehoboam, Would you maybe ease up on the workers a little bit? Uh, He had that socialist magazine that you see at the public market. (laughs) Uh, Not really. But... Uh, Rehoboam, apparently wanting to establish himself as tougher and stronger than his father, which is the curse of all sons, is it not, um, said, no, in fact, it's going to be worse. And and this is specifically what he said, 1 Kings 12, 11. He said, my father, meaning Solomon, disciplined you with whips, but I will discipline you with scorpions. Now, this is not how you negotiate with the head of the labor union. And Jeroboam led a revolt... And it led to the split of the people of Israel into two separate kingdoms. So we'll pull Israel apart here a little bit. And the northern kingdom was separated from the southern kingdom. Now, you remember the sons of, uh, of Jacob, 12 of them, became the patriarchs of the 12 tribes of Israel. So there are 12 tribes. And 10 of them went to the north uh, with Jeroboam. And that new nation, retained the name Israel. And two of them stayed in the south with Jeroboam, who was the Davidic king, in other words, descended from David, and that nation was named Judah after one of the remaining tribes. Now, it's important to realize that Jerusalem, the center of worship for the Jewish people, is in the southern kingdom, okay? And so the kingdom became divided, and and actually, for the next several centuries, we're talking about a divided kingdom and and the things that happen as a consequence of that. Um, now, the southern kingdom was, was certainly not any great model for uh, monotheism or, or faith in, in the one true God, but the northern kingdom um, was even worse. And so you see in the north the beginnings of, of polytheism, and, uh, and it's always creeping in, but it, it becomes especially bad in the north. And if you can believe it, let me go find it here. You would think that God's people would learn, but we don't. And imagine how stupid they would have to be to make golden calves to worship. Like we just did that on flannel graph two weeks ago, right? <laughs> <coughs> and yet they're making them again. <clears throat> they have short memories. So this divided kingdom continues for hundreds of years, and eventually both of them are conquered by neighboring uh, peoples, and the first to fall is the north, and they fall to the Assyrians in 722 B.C. Any Robert students here? No? Um, there's a, you know, the, the Western civilization professor, Professor Caton, um, requires you to know this date among 165 others for his 
freshman Western Civ class. So I still know it. 722 B.C., the Assyrian conquest of Israel. 586 B.C., the Babylonian conquest of Judah. And what happened, especially after that second one, because after the first one, the people still had a place to go. Some of them fled to Judah, uh, particularly to Jerusalem, where they could continue to worship. Um, But not for very long, because after just a couple more generations, the Babylonians conquered Judah and sent most of the Jews into exile. Thousands, tens of thousands of Jews sent out into Babylon, and and so they no longer have access to their homeland, no longer longer have access to the temple, which is their center of worship. Uh, And so, for all of what we talk about tonight, uh, I I will try to remember to give you context. Now, was this prophet we're talking about before or after the divided kingdom? Was it before or after the exile? I'll I'll do my best to kind of keep you posted on that stuff as we go. But Babylon conquered the south, the temple was destroyed, and uh, just so you know, after that, the Persians conquered Babylon, and um, then Alexander the Great conquered uh, everything, and <laughs> the, uh, the Maccabean revolt, if you've ever heard that term, the Jewish revolt, happened, uh, and the temple was restored, uh, and not soon, not long after that, the Roman Empire expanded in and, and conquered the area. So uh, once we get to the Roman Empire, we, uh, we have um, New Testament material mostly. But that temple, which was destroyed under the, the Babylonian conquest, was rebuilt sort of around the time that we finish up our stories tonight. So I'll put this new, nice new temple over there. It still has that new temple smell. But the important thing to remember tonight is that these, the kingdoms were divided and, and the people were in exile. Um, and during these troubled times, there, were, there was a separated monarchy, and some of the kings were okay, and most of the kings were pretty terrible. And all throughout, there were prophets who came and spoke to the kings and to the people. Now, how many have the, the sense of a prophet as a fortune teller or a predictor of the future, uh, a Nostradamus slash Miss Cleo kind of thing? You have that sense of what a prophet would be? That's sort of the assumption about when you hear the word prophet. Um, but in the, in the biblical context, a prophet is simply somebody who speaks on behalf of God and calls the people or the ruler to repentance and to holiness. And so what we're going to do tonight is go through and use a, a handful of the prophets of Israel as a sort of a catwalk through this history. Now, we can't talk about all the kings. There's lots and lots of them. We can't really talk about all the prophets, but I'll try to hit the most interesting ones and some of the most important ones, and, and we'll, we'll kind of go off of that as we fly along. But uh, the prophets, here's our uh, ever-present hand of God. The, the prophets in this era are the way that God communicates with his people. It's not coming down in the cloud. It's not talking on the mountain. It's now the prophets speaking to the kings and to the people. All right? So let's dive in to the prophets. And the first one uh, I want to tell you about is Elijah. He sang a song about Elijah, so we had to include him. There is Elijah. He's an interesting sort. Elijah uh, was a prophet to the nation of Israel in the north after the division of the kingdoms. And uh, the king at that time in the north was Ahab. This is about 150 years prior to the, uh, the sorry, prior to the conquest, but after the division um, of the kingdom. So Ahab 
uh, as you may remember, um, was a, a bad king because he, uh, well, he, he married pagan wives, and again, it's sort of doing what Solomon did. Uh, and, and I have a, actually a really funny thing to show you. I was doing some research this week, and I came across the Wikipedia entry for Ahab. Uh, can you read this? Uh, it's talking about the alliance. Doubtless the means of <laughs> procuring political support. Ahab is a playa. Now, anybody who's familiar with Wikipedia knows that this is wrong, and there should be a citation needed at the end there. Um, Ahab is a playa. I had to take a screen capture because I didn't know how long it would last. Um, but I guess that makes Elijah a playa hater, um, because he, uh, he speaks to Ahab. Now, um, <laughs> was it Ahab who married Jezebel? Somebody shouted out for me, who knows? Yeah, I thought it was, especially because crazy Jezebel was sitting right under Ahab there. Um, Jezebel was the, the wife, and uh, it led to that alternative rock song in the 90s that I can't remember, but... One of the things that Elijah predicted to Ahab was that God was going to bring a drought through the land. And indeed God did, and so there's no water and the food is drying up. And um, God tells Elijah, tell him about it, then get out, basically, and sends him to this cave for three years where he, he's near a river that still has water and he can drink water from that river. Uh, and his food is provided for him by ravens, uh, not the Baltimore ravens, but... Um, wild ones, and they bring him his food. Um, Elijah's main purpose in his ministry as a prophet was to call the people back to the one true God, Yahweh. Now, the people had started to worship Baal, which is one of the uh, pagan gods, Uh, and if I wanted to be really strident about the Hebrew pronunciation, that would probably be Baal, because anytime the verbs are, are uh, not verbs, vowels are next to each other. It kind of makes that stoppy, starty sound. But we're going to go with Baal because it's easier to say. So the people are, are this Baal worship is creeping in. And Elijah says this in great colorful language, First um, Kings eighteen twenty one. How long will you go limping with two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, follow him. And the, the greatest um, moment in his kind of struggle with the prophets of Baal came when he had this, this uh, sort of rap battle, throwdown competition with them. There were 450 prophets of Baal that he encounters, and he has this, uh, this sacrifice contest, you might call it. He says, okay, you guys go first, you 450 prophets of Baal. Build an altar, slaughter a bull, put the wood on the altar, put the bull on the wood. But don't light it. And pray to your God, Baal, and ask him to send the fire to consume this sacrifice on your altar. And so they do. They pray, and nothing happens. And they start to chant and dance, and they have this Baalic ritual, and nothing happens. And they're cutting themselves with knives and swords, and nothing happens. Silence. And Elijah begins to mock them. And he says, well, maybe he's traveling, Baal, and he can't hear you. Or maybe he's asleep. Shout it louder. Come on, guys. And nothing happens. And when it's clear that Baal is not going to come through in a pinch, uh, 
Elijah says, now it's God's turn, the Lord's turn. Builds an altar of 12 stones representing the 12 tribes of Israel. Puts the wood on it. Puts the slaughtered bull on it. Digs a trench around it. And then calls for 12 jars of water, which they use to douse this sacrifice, this offering, and totally soak it, including filling the trench around the the base of the altar. And then he says, okay, stand back. (laughs) And he prays to God, and God sends fire that is so all-consuming that not only is the sacrifice consumed, uh, but all the water is dried up, including the water in the trench around. And so he has won this sacrifice contest with the prophets of Baal. Uh, and then he actually orders them to be chased down and killed. But, um, one of, <laughs> and if that disturbs you, uh, you probably weren't here for the past few weeks because that's pretty tender uh, by these Old Testament standards. It is one of the troubling stories, uh, kinds of stories in the Old Testament, but that's what he does. He, he orders them chased down and killed. Um, Elijah earns the distinction of, of not dying and being buried the way uh, others were, but instead he is taken to heaven in a whirlwind and accompanied by a chariots and horses of fire. So you can see Elijah here um, getting ready for the, the roller coaster ride of his life. <laughs> and this man is Elisha with an SH in the middle and no H at the end. Elisha who was the, uh, sort of the understudy to Elijah. He was his disciple. Uh, and I won't talk too much about Elisha, uh, except to point out one thing that, that happens there. He is, um, well, he's bald. You can see there. Um, this painter was probably a little generous there. I, I picture him as being, like, really bald. Um, but don't make fun of him, because some, some young people did make fun of him for being bald, and uh, in yet another disturbing story that is actually sort of amusing since it was thousands of years ago and wasn't our kids, uh, he curses them in the name of Yahweh, and wild bears come and devour the, the kids who made fun of his baldness. So don't make fun of the prophet's hair. <laughs> um, so that's Elisha. Our next prophet is, uh, is Jonah. And Jonah is kind of interesting for the following reason. Jonah was not sent to the people of Israel or Judah or to either king. Jonah was sent outside to Nineveh. Now, where is Nineveh? Well, it's in Assyria. It's across the Tigris and Euphrates rivers in Assyria. Now, he lives down here somewhere. And the Lord sends him to Nineveh, and he says, okay, God, I'll go to Nineveh. And he goes over to the coast of the Mediterranean and gets on a boat for Tarshish. Now, who's a geography whiz and knows where Tarshish is? Jonah, Nineveh, Tarshish is on the west coast of Spain. (laughs) So I don't know if any of you have ever sort of felt like God was calling you to do something that was difficult and uh, you decided to go to Spain instead. Uh, but this is what Jonah decides to do. Now, bad idea, because he's in a boat. <laughs> Jonah's on a boat with T-Pain. And uh, 
And, and the Lord sends a storm that causes the sea to just, just rage. And the, the boat is about to break up, and the, and the people have this sort of interesting superstitious way of determining who's at fault for this storm. And they cast lots. And I think it's superstitious, but either it isn't or God is willing to work in the context of their superstition because the lot falls to Jonah. And then Jonah admits that, well, maybe, sort of, I was supposed to go to Nineveh and I'm going to Spain instead, and so you probably should just throw me overboard. Well, and they're, they're somewhat gracious, and they say, well, no, you were an honest chap. Why don't we just row back, and you can get off and go to Nineveh, and then we can continue our journey. But unfortunately, the storm is so intense that they can't row the boat back to shore, and they say, okay, we'll throw you over after, uh, after all. And so Jonah is thrown over into the Mediterranean, uh, and God says, prophet fail. And sends the first ever recorded instance of the fail whale. <laughs> so anybody who's on Twitter knows what the fail whale is. Actually started back with, in the time of Jonah. Uh, the Lord sends this. It's alternately called in the Old Testament a big fish. And I believe in the New Testament it's called a whale. Either way, it's a big swimmy thing. And it swallows Jonah up. And Jonah spends three days and three nights in the belly of this fish. Does that ring a bell with anybody, that three days, three nights in the dark kind of thing? And in fact, Jesus refers back to this and says, just as Jonah spent three days and three nights, so I will also kind of go under for three days. Um, so after three days and three nights, uh, the, the whale spits Jonah up onto the shore, and Jonah says, you know what, I'll go to Spain next year. <laughs> I'm going to go to Nineveh after all. And so he, he, uh, he fulfills his calling and goes to Nineveh. And that's Jonah. Our next prophet tonight is uh, a really important one, the prophet Isaiah. We'll put him right here. Isaiah has his own book. He's one of the major prophets. There are five major prophets and 12 minor prophets. Um, That doesn't mean there were only 17 prophets in the Bible. There were more. But there are 17 books of the prophets in the Bible. And the, the five major are called major not because they're more important, but because their books are longer. So if you want to be remembered as major something, you just write a lot more. Um, But the 12 minor prophets are just shorter books. Isaiah, one of the majors, his book has 66 chapters. um, And a a really famous story about Isaiah comes in chapter 6 when he sort of receives his calling from the Lord. Uh, And this is is a really popular passage. You may have heard this before. Uh, It's from Isaiah 6. This is what he says. In the year that King Isaiah died... I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lofty, and the hem of his robe filled the temple. Seraphs, so so angels, were in attendance above him. Each had six wings. With two they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. We We Christians look back at that and say, hmm, three holies. Sort of like the Trinity, isn't it? The whole earth is full of his glory. The pivots on the thresholds shook at the voices of those who called. And the house filled with smoke. And I said, woe is me, I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. Yet my eyes have seen the King, 
the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphs flew to me, holding a live coal that had been taken from the altar with a pair of tongs. The seraph touched my mouth with it and said, Now that this has touched your lips, your guilt has departed and your sin is blotted out. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Isn't it interesting he says us? And I said, Here I am. Send me. This incredible experience, a vision of heaven with the angels singing God's praises. And he's, when we talk about our value of awe here, this is what we're talking about. Woe is me. I am a man of unclean lips, and yet I've seen the king. I'm not worthy. And so God has this, this kind of, uh, the angels provide this kind of cool um, way of making him right. This is a sort of an interesting atonement. Um, the angels, uh, not those angels, wait, that, that can't be right. The, this angel, <laughs> that'll do. That was, uh, those guys were from Dogma. I don't know if you could see that or not. <laughs> Anybody who likes Matt Damon and Ben Affleck, we'll just put them right down there. But what an incredible scene where he's, just, he's, he's speaking of his uncleanness in the context of his lips, and the angel just burns it right off and says, now we're good. And then it immediately results in a calling. So when there's forgiveness and atonement, it's followed by a calling. And Isaiah's response is, here I am, send me. You probably also know Isaiah because of the messianic prophecies. The, the, and this is, he was... Uh, one of the more predictive prophets. And uh, among those 66 chapters, especially toward the end, you find prophecy after prophecy about the coming Messiah. And we Christians believe that those prophecies were fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ. And uh, so if you want to read up on that sort of thing, it's a great place to start if you're interested in in messianic prophecies. Uh, A lot of his prophecies had to do with the nature and character of Christ's death. So uh, stuff like he was led like a lamb to the slaughter and he didn't fight along the way. He went um, meekly and that sort of thing. But uh, Isaiah's prophecies are full of messianic stuff. So if that's the kind of thing you're interested in, you should definitely check that out. Uh, And Isaiah, by the way, was a prophet to, to Judah in the south prior to the Babylonian captivity. Um, during his uh, ministry is when the northern kingdom was, was uh, conquered. So, Our next prophet is Jeremiah. Let's put Jeremiah right here. I'm going to do as my custom and come over here so you guys can see a little better. Jeremiah was also a prophet to Judah, the southern kingdom. Uh, and during his... His uh, ministry is when the Babylonian exile happened. So that's, that's the context for him. Jeremiah wrote uh, two books of prophecies, as you can see. Not only the book of Jeremiah, but also the book of Lamentations. Um, so there's lots and lots of stuff about that you can read uh, from Jeremiah. The one that I want to call to your attention tonight is a very important verse for the life of our church. And many of you, if not most of you, have heard us quote this passage before, Jeremiah 29, verses 4 through 7. And this is, Jeremiah is speaking on behalf of the Lord to the people uh, who are in exile. So they've been sent away from their homeland. They are unable to access their center of worship, 
Their entire religious life and, and cultural life has been flipped, turned upside down. And uh, so this is the context of this passage. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. This is what he tells them to do. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf for in its welfare you will find your welfare. Can you imagine saying such a thing to the people of God who've been exiled from their homeland and who can't worship properly in the temple? You would think God would say, store up arms because we are going to conquer those guys. Or you would think he would say, flee away in the dead of night and try to get back to Jerusalem. Worship me somehow. No, what he tells them is, sit tight. Live your life in the city where you are. You may feel separated and exiled, and it's because you are. But seek the welfare of the place where I have put you. I think this is a great message for the church to hear. And if the church actually followed this instruction, I think it would be an incredible thing. We do our best around here. Well, not our best probably, don't we? But but we, we try this at least, to engage the culture of the place where God has put us. It seems easier in the church to say, whoa, things are really bad out there. Let's just take a step back, close our doors, pull the shades, and wait for Jesus to come and take us away to paradise. That's not what Jeremiah says the Lord wants them to do. Fully engage the place they are. And so that's, that's a really important part of our culture as a church. We are not going to, to be the kind of place that just shuts everybody out. We're going to do our best to engage the culture of the city where we have been placed. That's Jeremiah. I'll talk very briefly about the prophet Ezekiel. Um, I don't think I put his name up there. Um, but Ezekiel was a, also a prophet to Judah, the southern nation, during the exile. I just have a picture of him here. I don't have a whole lot of stories to tell you about him. No kind of key event. Um, but you may remember in that song, The Days of Elijah, there's a verse about Ezekiel and there's life to the dry bones. And we sing that, that uh, water deep song sometimes called Just Like You. It's just like you to bring life to these dry bones. That comes from the imagery of the prophet Ezekiel. Uh, Ezekiel was very, very strange and very dramatic. And uh, as I said this morning, I encourage you to read Ezekiel and, and read some of those crazy stories unless you are a heavy drug user in which case it would probably send you over the edge. Um, but some of the stuff that he does is, cr- like he, he lays on one side for, you know, 400 days, and then, just to prove a point, and then at the end of that time he says, I'm going to lay on the other side now, and lays on his other side for 40 days. Um, and there's a, I think there's a story where he cuts off all his hair, and he divides it into thirds, and one third of it he throws into the air, and the other third of it he burns, and the other third of it he cuts with a sword or something. Very, very strange stuff. Um, but it's all kind of, 
sort of prophetic teaching messages. He's, he's really laying it on thick to get this message across uh, to the people. So, uh, and our last prophet for tonight is, is Daniel. Oh, Daniel. Danny boy. Daniel, uh, another prophet to the southern kingdom of Judah during exile, uh, sort of in the tradition of some of his ancestors, became um, famous for interpreting dreams. And so he rose, he rose in the kind of royal court uh, under the Babylonian exile because he was a dream interpreter. Uh, so much so that, that some of the others who were uh, in the court began to see him as a rival, and they resented him. And so they set him up with King Darius, and they said, O king, you, they know, see, that Daniel is in the habit of praying to the Lord three times a day. And so he, they say, why don't you make a law? You're a great king. Why don't you make a law that you're the only person anybody can petition when they need help? They can't pray to any other god, just the king. And the king says, you know, that's a good idea. I'm a king. Let's do it. Write it down. Not thinking, even though he likes Daniel, what the consequences of this are going to be. And so they bring the statue uh, out, and, and he, all the people bow down to it, and Daniel refuses to and continues to pray to the Lord. And so the king must be true to his decree, doesn't want to lose face, and so the punishment for breaking this law is that the offender would be thrown into the den of lions, hungry lions. And so he says, pray to your God on the way down because here you go. And Daniel's thrown in and the door is shut. And the next day, he comes out to see if Daniel has made it. And indeed, Daniel is alive. And he says, I prayed to the Lord, and the Lord closed the mouths of the lions. So he pulls them out, joyous. And then he says, okay, who was it who told me to make that law? You, you, and you, into the pit. And in a particularly colorful description of what happens, the text tells us that before they hit the ground, they were consumed by the lions. Daniel is also significant to us because uh, sort of especially among all the other prophets, uh, more than any of the others, his prophecies, uh, many of them we see as unfulfilled. So a lot of the prophetic stuff from Isaiah uh, and Jeremiah and Ezekiel we see as being fulfilled in the person and work of Jesus. Daniel, on the other hand, some of the prophecies, the, the predictive types, um, actually, we believe, pertain to the end of all things. And so, if you are studying eschatology, just the study of the end of all things, you would look to the book of Revelation, and you'd also look to the book of Daniel. And you kind of combine those two, and, and uh, if you're into that sort of thing, that's, that's where you need to go. So, <clears throat> there you have it. The high points, and it is just the high points, I'm sorry to say, of the prophets of Israel... And actually, indeed, the high points, and just the high points, of the entire Old Testament. Now, I don't know about you, but this has been particularly helpful to me in understanding the Bible 
as we've come along through this series. And um, as we close the flannel graph series tonight, we're going to turn our attention to the next thing on the calendar. And in fact, today is the first day of Advent as celebrated on the Christian calendar. So Christians all around the world are celebrating Advent. Um, Advent, not to be confused with uh, Christmas, <laughs> is the period of time when we anticipate Christmas. And there are four weeks of Advent, and Advent just means coming or arrival. And so we, we celebrate and anticipate the coming, not of Martha Stewart, let's get her off there actually, but of Jesus. And so each week in, the, in, in uh, Advent, there are, are assigned readings, and one of the readings each week is from the Old Testament. And it just so happens that today's Old Testament reading comes from the prophet Jeremiah. So let's turn back to Jeremiah briefly as we turn our attention from the Old Testament to the New, and specifically to, to the arrival of Jesus, the Messiah. And let's look at his Messianic prophecy from today's Advent reading Uh, in the Old Testament, which is Jeremiah chapter 33, verses 14 through 16. The days are surely coming, says the Lord, when I will fulfill the promise I made to the house of Israel and to the house of Judah. In those days and at that time, I will cause a righteous branch to spring up for David. And he shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In those days, Judah will be saved and Jerusalem will live in safety. And this is the name by which it will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. What a great image that this branch from from the line of David will grow up and be the salvation of God's people and indeed of all people. So, as we look toward Christmas and the birth of Jesus, Advent is kind of like pushing pause on the fulfillment of that promise and forcing ourselves to wait a little bit. There are some kids in the room and and certainly some kids at heart in the room, and is it hard to wait for Christmas? Do you guys think it's hard to wait for Christmas? Especially as it gets closer, you're thinking, oh man, ten more days till Christmas. Nine and a half more days till Christmas. (laughs) Nine and a quarter days till Christmas. And it just seems to slow down. And it's hard to wait, isn't it? And for those of us who are grown-ups and have kids of our own, we've had a sort of a rekindling of that feeling. Like, oh man, I can't wait to see him open his presence, you know. But I think actually being forced to wait for things is useful to our character. And so even though as Christians we believe that that the most important event in all of human history has already happened, the birth, ministry, death, and resurrection of Jesus, it's good to sort of place ourselves back and anticipate his arrival again and to say, what must it have been like during those dark years? when they were waiting for God to move. 
And the other thing that's interesting about Advent is that as Christians, we not only sort of put ourselves back in history and try to re-anticipate the birth of Jesus, but we also put ourselves ahead in history and begin to anticipate the return of Jesus and the summary of all things, the completion of all of God's work. And so as we begin Advent today and be thinking about this as we continue it for the next few weeks, remember what it's like to wait And with that in mind, I was thinking maybe we could wait just a couple of minutes before we go to communion. And what are we going to do while we wait? Well, nothing. We're going to wait. And I don't really necessarily have a specific amount of time that I'd like you to wait, but if you're a person who goes right up to the table after the sermon's over, maybe wait 30 seconds or a minute. If you're a person who already waits a little bit, Maybe wait even longer and inhabit that anticipation. Whenever you're done waiting, however long that is for you, and maybe we'll have the the music hold off for just a couple of minutes so we can have a a couple minutes of silence after this. Uh, But however long that waiting for you is, when you're done waiting, come to the table uh, and you can, if you're seeking to follow Jesus in this place, uh, we'd love to have you celebrate his table with us, and you can just tear off a piece of the bread. We have wine and juice, whatever is appropriate for you, uh, and dip it in one or the other. And, and remember his birth and his death and resurrection. And we sort of reenact that every week when we, when we celebrate communion together. So let's pray, and then we'll have a couple minutes of waiting. God, thank you for this incredible story and for the, uh, the ways that has spoken to us over the past four weeks and the ways it has challenged us and the things that we've learned about you and about ourselves looking at the stories of the Old Testament. And tonight we turn our attention to Jesus <coughs> and to his arrival. And as we spend a few minutes just waiting, would you give us a a sense of the reality that even in those times of anticipation, those not quite yet moments, that you are still present with us? And make yourself known to us in the silence. And continue to make yourself known to us in the elements of communion. We give you thanks and praise uh, in the name of the one true God. Amen. This has been the Artisan Church Podcast. To receive future podcasts, go to www.artisanchurch.com slash podcast or subscribe on iTunes. Thank you for listening.